should see a little thing pop up on your screen, so you would want to clear that out. All right, here we go. Why can't we live together? Why can't we live together? Why can't we live together? Why can't we be together? You are still my brother. 
Now, if we have the power, when our neighbors home from there, they would never smile, no more ribbons on their own. We trust that some of the best, but you can't just watch your God. When the whole information goes, it's not that we don't care, because no one got to fight it there. So we keep on I'm so Thank you. 
Ladies and gentlemen, turn around us, people all over the world, brothers, sisters, around the planet. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Come on now.
that okay?
up, let love be, and let it be lovely. Regardless, I just work and get ugly. They can create laws, but I refuse to let them budge me. I stand firm with the earth beneath my feet and the sky above me. No one, only one can judge me. For love's free, it is intangible. It dwells in the land of the unseen. It's like when two people went to live with the one dream. Like two dying stars combining to shine brighter than the sun's beam. Like conjoining rivers to flow with the power of one stream.
This is Jeffrey Geisner, founder of the Jewish Culture and Holocaust 107 Remembrance Group. I'm delighted to have you with us. We have a very nice and large crowd for our presentation. We have today uh, Only Hope, Better Tomorrows with Lady Esther Gilbert, Joe Sharinsky, and Jess Halpert. Welcome friends who have returned, those who are new to the program. I also wanna let you know some technical stuff. If you, we're on Zoom, it's, it's a technical platform. If you get connected and missed out, just come back in the same link that you went to. Um, our Q&A will be the end of the program when all three presenters have uh, presented. Uh, it's nice to say hello to our survivors. Uh, Ruth and Diana is with Ruth over there. Say hello. And Sammy Steinman is not on screen, but we want to see him. Also, um, please um, put yourself on screen because if you're not, we won't see you. Hi, Sammy, uh, and uh, welcome. The um, presenters would love to be able to see your reactions to their presentations. So it's great as you are coming on screen more and more of you are filling up the screen, so great. Uh, as I start all of the programs I uh, since 10-7, I want to uh, send out um, prayers for our brothers and sisters in Israel, um, the defense forces who are uh, proudly uh, um, defending us as a people, the innocents in Gaza who are caught in between. And so I'm going to start the program and allow each of us to have several minutes to say our own um, words in peace and in quiet. So here we go.
Again, welcome to our program today, Only uh, Hope, Better Tomorrows. I'm Jeffrey Geisner, founder of the Jewish Culture and Holocaust and Seven Remembrance Group. We have a very nice, large group today. And as we speak, I continue to admit more. I want to tell you that um, our first speaker will be Jess Helper. Jess, uh, raise your hand there so we can see you. And um, I want you to introduce yourself briefly, and then you'll present your presentation. So go ahead, Jess. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much, Jeffrey, for inviting me and having me today. It's great here to be with all of you. I am Jess Hepler. I'm a PhD candidate in philosophy at UC Berkeley. I write about intuition and gut feelings. I'm also a Jewish meditation teacher in training, and I do a lot of writing, editing, and research work. But Part of the reason I'm here today is because I'm also a Jew and a Sephardi and Ashkenazi Jew. And a couple of years ago, uh, when Portugal was announced that they were changing their requirements for citizenship based on being Sephardi, it brought me on a whole journey with my Judaism and with my genealogy. And I'm so excited to share part of that with you today. Thanks so much, Jeffrey, for having me. Okay, you can share your screen and you can continue. All right. Okay. Okay. So um, I'll tell you a little bit more about me before I get started. So this is me as a baby. I grew up on Long Island and I grew up in an interfaith family. My mother is Jewish and my father is not. Uh, my mother is Ashkenazi and Sephardi and my father is not Jewish. He's German and Swedish. 
And these days I'm writing, I'm editing, I'm researching, working on a PhD in philosophy. I work with lots of people who write different kinds of projects, fiction, nonfiction, business writing, freaky artist kind of work, all of it. My journey, especially with genealogy, has brought me to a lot of my current interests in embodiment and epistemology, which is the nature of knowledge, Jewish thought, Jewish meditation, and ancestral healing, which is something that I'll talk about towards the end. So the beginning of my interest in genealogy started when I was in university. I am a researcher, I'm a philosopher, by no means a historian, except of my own family lineage. And one of my favorite modes of procrastination when I was an undergrad was doing genealogy. At some point when I was maybe 19 years old, my grandma said to me, you know, I'm really curious about my family. And I think she wrote me a check to have one month of access to ancestry.com. And I started sort of going down a rabbit hole and I became addicted quickly. I learned that by sort of just searching for a name or two, I could find other people's trees, I could find census records, and I could get information about professions, about where they lived, how often they moved, when their kids moved out, when elderly folks moved into the house. And I was amazed at how much I could find out about my family. And part of what fascinated me so much, especially about researching the Jewish side, is that I was raised very, very secularly. I was raised interfaith you know, in such the way that, you know, you can choose when you're older. Um, but as a result, I kind of got the greatest hits of both. Um, my family growing up, we did Christmas and Easter, but I don't think I knew who Jesus was until I was 12, like literally. And we also did Passover, we did Hanukkah, we did Rosh Hashanah, we did Yom Kippur, but only within the family. So we didn't really have a lot of Jewish community outside of the family. To me, these were all holidays that we did sort of at grandma's house. And I cherish those memories so deeply. They mean so much to me. And when I first started doing genealogy, this connected me to a story and a lineage that I felt otherwise a little bit disconnected from. And one of the most interesting things that I discovered that my grandma only had the faintest inclination of was that we were not just Ashkenazi descended from, you know, formerly Prussia, nowadays Germany, Poland, Ukraine, Austria but also from Spain and Portugal, meaning that one side of my grandma's family are Sephardic Jews. And this is the link here. And at this time in 2015, I was not so interested in Jewish practice. I was very academic. I was very committed to being rational and to philosophy and had no interest whatsoever in spiritual practice. But I did think it was pretty cool that um, not only was I descended from this family of Mendoza's, of Gomez de Costa's, but that they were very, very well-known and well-researched. So I, in many ways, was very lucky because so much of the legwork had been done for me about their story, about how they, along with many, many other Jews after the Spanish Inquisition in 1492, stayed there as conversos or as new Christians. So many of them converted and many stayed Christian for a long time and moved to other places or stayed there forever. There are lots of people in Portugal now who have sometimes these strange Jewish practices, like when someone dies, maybe they cover the mirrors or they clean the house on Fridays and there are these remnants of Jewish practice. But there were others that to my understanding really kept living Jewish lives in private and they'd have to be very careful. They'd have to make sure they do things like not sweep 
dust into the middle of the floor because you weren't supposed to sweep dust past the mezuzah. They have to make sure that the candles weren't seen from their window on Friday nights. They have to be very careful to make sure that their neighbors thought they were eating the same pork that everyone else was eating in the neighborhood. There's a whole lot of history there that I can go into, not an expert in it, but it was very interesting for me to learn about and to learn about this part of my family's story. I'd already felt very connected to the Ashkenazi side from my grandma's stories and a lot of stories I think um, got passed down the maternal line in a really clear way that those are the traditions and that's the culture that I got. But this part was a lot more mysterious to me and interesting and being in the United States, I didn't know any other Sephardic Jews. All the Jews that I did know were also descended from Germany and Poland. So fast forward a bit, this is some of the research that's been done on these two families. I'm happy to send any resources after. So there's a wonderful um, genealogist named David Mendoza, who is certainly my cousin, maybe first, second, sec first cousin, second cousin, many times removed. Um, fast forward to after college. And I started to become a bit interested in Judaism. I was sort of on a whole healing journey and I had found myself throughout the years uh, drawn to more esoteric practices. So using tarot cards and kind of in San Francisco Bay area, new age kind of stuff. And at a certain point I was sort of dissatisfied with it. And I started to wonder what were my ancestors doing? And this was happening alongside a lot of conversations that were starting to happen at that time about cultural appropriation and um, make sure you're not stealing from other cultures, but like, what was your family doing? And really the thing that spoke to me in those conversations was what, what was my family doing? What do these practices look like? This led me down a long winding road. That's another story um, where I started going to synagogue. I ended up living in a Jewish co-op throughout the pandemic. This was our sukkah during um, the pandemic time. This is our, our Passover Seder. We even had a Torah in the house because we kept it for another organization and we did Simcha Torah. So this was really my deep dive into, into culture. And I was lucky enough to live with a friend who's also um, Sephardic and Ashkenazi. So I started to learn about that. And fast forward again to March, 2022. When I first learned that I was Sephardic, I had heard that Spain and Portugal were offering the option for citizenship. Um, and I always thought, I'll do that someday. That seems really expensive. I'm a student. I certainly don't have money for this. In March 2022, Portugal announced that they were changing the rules. There's a lot of reasons for this. Happy to go into it in the Q&A, to what I know from my, from my knowledge. But essentially, they started adding, uh, or they're trying, still trying to add a requirement that you have to have inherited some property which is a bit of a funny requirement if your family was expelled from Spain for being Jewish or if they forcibly had to leave out of worries for their safety. But nevertheless, me and tens of thousands of people, mostly in the same Facebook group as me, started trying to work very quickly to get our application started and our files in before that window closed. And so I wanted to talk just a little bit about how I did this what this looked like and the journey that it took me on and some of the methods that I did in case this might be helpful for someone else. Um, this was for my Sephardic family. I've also found out a lot about my Ashkenazi family and my non-Jewish family from this. And I think that it's also been very personally significant. And so I'll try to address all of that before finish. So I mostly used Ancestry.com. I didn't use any DNA at all. Um, I certainly could have. I think I have, I have some privacy concerns as I know many people do. But for me, I was able to find so much just by searching names, finding other people's trees, and sort of crawling back through census records slowly, slowly, slowly. 
I also learned a lot just by Googling names and dates. There are often family trees that are on other websites that are not ancestry.com that have a lot of information. Sometimes different people have pictures. I've messaged people to ask for information. Um, census records have been among the most helpful. Um, if you have family from New York City, New York City has a ton of digital archives these days and you can just search the name of an ancestor. And if it's before something like 1920, the records will be there. And lastly, synagogue archives. This was for me the most uh, the most unexpected in figuring out my genealogy and also the most exciting. So I learned that my family, after they left Portugal in 1727, they ended up at Bevismark Synagogue in London in the United Kingdom. And this synagogue was created for the first waves of refugees coming from Portugal after the Spanish Inquisition. And this first wave coming to England, I should say, was actually in the 1600s and the 1700s. So these were all Jews who were seen at that time as new Christians and were publicly practicing Christianity, privately practicing Judaism. And Bevis Mark started to send boats and um, work out something where the, the Jews who were coming would pay them back. They would come to the synagogue, they would have a proper Jewish marriage, they would get circumcised if they weren't already. And this was the beginning of this community and Baruch Hashem, it still exists. I've gotten to visit it many times. And part of tracing my family back meant that there was a certain point where census records did not exist anymore. Census records didn't start in England until sometime in the 1800s. And I had everything I needed from the US. But I had to go back a little bit further, and thankfully, the synagogue kept incredible records from the very beginning. While I was there, I also got to look at some other archives. Um, this is, uh, sorry, I wrote David Mendoza, but I meant Daniel Mendoza, who was a very famous boxer in England. He really made a good name for Jews at the time that he came over. Um, he won a lot of he was he won a lot of competitions, and he really changed the reputation of Jews in England, at least within certain spheres. And I also was able to find interesting markers of Sephardic genealogy in certain records in the U.S. So here, this is my great great grandmother. And her father's name and her mother's name are both listed here. And the birthplace is listed as Portugal, even though everything that I know says that they were born in London, England. There was a practice at this time of saying that your parents were where they were from was actually their national was actually their sort of their DNA, their nationality, where they were really from and not actually where they were born. So in this case, they were descended from Sephardic Jews. They'd only married Sephardic Jews. So mother's birthplace, father's birthplace and mother's birthplace were both listed as Portugal. In the synagogue records, I was able to get some more concrete proof that they actually did come from Portugal. So applying for Portuguese citizenship, you had to gather many, many, many documents, but for the genealogy part of it and getting the certificate that says, yes, you are definitely descended from Sephardic Jews, certain Jews, especially those who went by way of London, have to go back very far because there are so many records. And so there are all these different birth registers, marriage registers, and death registers. I was able to access a lot of them in the US, but there came a certain point where I could not get it on interlibrary on interlibrary loan. 
I couldn't find it online. I had to go to London to find some other records. So this one is a birth register. This is what a lot of the covers look like. And then over here, we can see um, the professions, we can see the marriage records. And on this list, uh, my ancestors are Aaron Mendoza and Rachel Raphael, who were the same ones that were listed right here. And so drawing these kinds of links were absolutely crucial for establishing the fact that I am descended from Sephardic Jews. And the most important part, in fact, was finding the very last record. And I struggled enormously to find this. I was going down many lines and my friend who grew up in the synagogue, his mother does some volunteer archival work. And she would say, oh, that book you need, that one was lost in the fire in the late 1800s. Oh, this one was lost for some reason. And then sort of as an offhand comment, she flipped through in about two seconds and found this, which was the missing link that I needed to apply for Portuguese citizenship. And you'll notice that it says Bindos de Portugal. I'm probably mispronouncing that. And that basically means arrival from Portugal. So going through and establishing 10 generations of birth, death, and marriage records for every single generation of my family eventually led me to be able to find this particular ketubah that proves definitively that they were arrivals from Portugal and also found some other interesting things. So for example, my, my poor 10th great grandfather was circumcised at 52 years old and his son at 17 years old. And that then gave me pretty much everything I needed to apply. And while I was also there, I started to go a little bit more into the history to see what remained of this community that started in the 1600s, 1700s, and still continues today. While some members of the synagogue are descended from Sephardic Jews, um, they're in the tradition of Spanish and Portuguese Nusach, um, of tradition, for those of you who are familiar, there are a lot of interesting remnants that are in some ways abandoned and in some ways are not. So this is the Novo Cemetery, the new cemetery, and the wave of immigrants that came with my family were largely buried here. And I found these burial records and I was searching, searching, searching. I knew that I should be able to find based on my records about 20 different relatives in here. And I went through and I looked at pretty much every single grave and I could only find one person. And what was the reason for that? It turned out that there was a large fight many years prior that about Queen Mary University, which is actually where the cemetery is. It's right in the middle of a university. Everything's very modern, very clean and fancy. And then in the middle is this graveyard that looks almost abandoned. And it turns out that once they brought the property, they had moved a lot of the graves to Brentwood, which was a few hours away. And so I was disappointed that I wasn't able to go. I I felt that it was such a microcosm of what often happens to Jewish spaces, to Jewish cemeteries, as these historical events take place, as they're forgotten, and as people as people move on, as land is grabbed, etc. The one that I did find, you definitely cannot read this, but it is my fourth or my fifth great aunt, Elizabeth Mendoza, who is the sister of my first ancestor who came from London to New York. Um, 
most likely as an economic migrant. Um, and this is my my dear friend Isaac, who grew up in Bethesda Marks and was helping me sort of navigate the cemetery and clear away the dirt and the moss on the graves to try to find these ancestors and the markings that I thought I would find. And before I applied, I did have the very hardest part of gathering information, which was getting living family members birth certificates and records. Um, after traveling to London, after going through library records, after requesting state records, after getting apostle signatures from the Secretary of State, the very hardest thing was getting my birth and living grandmother's birth certificate, and I did eventually get it. And so finally, about a year and a half later, I did receive the genealogy certificate that I needed from the Comunidad Israelita do Porto, and I was so happy. I was so satisfied. I worked so hard to, to find all of this and put all of this together. And as many of you know, if you know those who have applied for Portuguese citizenship, the process is very slow. And particularly since the new law came into place, there are many tens of thousands of people who applied. And I think there's about a three-year queue right now. So I have not heard back yet, unfortunately. I keep my fingers crossed, but the only thing that was strictly incomplete in my file at the time that I sent it in was this. And so I was very happy to be able to send it in. And so EU citizenship is wonderful. Of course, it's something that a lot of Americans and people in other countries aspire to. And that was part of my motivation for doing this, but that's really not the only reason. And I wanted to spend at least a few minutes talking about this and about the connection of doing this genealogy work with my personal journey. So growing up, especially without Judaism and without a lot of stories of, of the old country and a lot of connection to Judaism, I think that's part of what initially drew me to wondering about my ancestors, about their stories, about where they come from, about who they are, about sort of what am I, what am I inheriting exactly? And I got to inherit some wonderful things that I'm so grateful for. And as my interest in Jewishness sort of evolved and grew throughout my 20s, as I was trying to learn the words, learn the melodies, learn when you bow in the Amidah, there were so many things that I felt were missing. And for me, doing this genealogy work was the first way that I was able to sort of find the ancestors in the mirror. And that even when I was saying these words imperfectly or following along imperfectly, that there was this, this mix of grief and joy that I knew that thousands and thousands of years ago, my ancestors were saying these same words on the same day, mm. in the same Hebrew learner solar calendar. And this was especially true. I got to go to Bevis Marks this last Yom Kippur. Um, and it was really remarkable. It's so many things are done so much like they are done then. And not many Jews are able to go back to a synagogue that their parents, that their um, ancestors went to 200, 300 years ago. So I feel incredibly privileged. I feel how incredibly special that is, given that everything that so many different lineages of Jews have been through. And for me, beyond that ancestral connection too, I think there's also an element of healing in it. So there's been a lot of work on intergenerational trauma and especially in epigenetics and the ways that we can inherit the fears, the traumas, the gifts and the talents of our ancestors. And in my own process and in my own healing, it's been interesting to think about the qualities that I see in myself, that I see in my family and to what extent these are reflected in the journeys that I know my ancestors went through because of census records, death records, historical records. 
There's someone named Joe Ken Katz who does a lot of work on transgenerational trauma and internalized anti-Semitism. And she says that while the impact of trauma on individuals may vary significantly, the impact of trauma on a group of people with a shared history of navigating systemic oppression can often be tracked collectively. We refer to this as collective trauma. Epigenetics and by directly witnessing those around us, we often inherit the unconscious learned responses of our ancestors. These patterns of thought, feeling, and behavior were often developed in response to life-threatening events or conditions. Thus, we inherit them as instruments for our own protection. We can refer to these patterns as ancestral trauma or intergenerational trauma. And when we think about what some of these qualities are in Joe's work, and there's another woman, um, Penny Rosenthal, who does incredible work on internalized anti-Semitism, we can think about a lot of the qualities that we often think of as, as, very, as very Jewish anxiety, um, desire to, you know, having a really, really intense work ethic, um, wanting to be very successful or being afraid of being successful for fear of being seen, for being visible and then putting yourself in danger, um, really being afraid to go to other places or not being able to stay in one place at all. There are all of these ways that Jewish trauma manifests. And to me, it's been really interesting to learn about my family history and to think about some of these qualities. So. In my family, for instance, a lot of people are very, very afraid to travel outside of really a very small area. And I've always wondered why that is because I didn't feel that I had that so much. But the more that I've learned and realized this particular line is a line that stayed in Portugal for 200 years after the inquisition started. And these are people who sort of wanted to do the thing of staying safe, of not going somewhere new because it might be more dangerous to be Jewish there than it would be to be a new Christian and secretly practice Judaism. And then there's, of course, the Ashkenazi side of my family who left most likely due to pogroms. And there are questions always about the safety of new places, the safety of the journey to a new place. And to me, that among many, many other qualities has been really illuminating. And it's often been really supportive for me too when working through particular fears or anxieties that I myself connect to, to Jewish trauma collectively or individual or within a lineage. And I thought about this, especially over the summer, I had the opportunity to travel to Portugal for the first time. I sent in all my application materials long before I got to travel to Portugal. I went there for a conference. And going through the old Jewish quarter in Lisbon and getting to see some of these remnants of Jewish history. So I don't know if you can see on that left doorpost, um, you can see sort of a vague imprint of where Moseza was. This is in the Jewish quarter. I felt being there, I could imagine what it was like to, to go from Portugal to London, to have such a difference in climate, to have such a difference in the plants and the ecosystem. There's a way that our, our bodies become so accustomed and connected to the places we are that it can be really difficult to go somewhere new. And this balance between comfort and persecution, going somewhere new and wanting to keep your family safe and wanting the best for the next generation is something that I feel I've developed immense compassion for through doing this genealogy and through understanding my own family's history. And it was even, it was even more um, profound when I did a tour in Porto and some of these beautiful scenes like this, this stairwell, I learned about some of the traumas that did in fact happen during the inquisition and the intense violence that was done. Um, I'll spare the details now, happy to go into it in the Q and A if people are interested, 
but learning about the heaviness of it, I, I was able to bring a lot of both compassion and grief to visiting that place and to thinking about what it might have been like. And I feel that in general, building this kind of ancestral connection can help us both connect in deeper ways to our Jewish tradition, which is inherently an ancestral tradition and inherently an ancestral tradition and inherently an ancestral practice. And I think that can help us really lean more fully into the grief and joy that come together in all kinds of Jewish traditions. Um, in Judaism, we really don't fragment parts of ourselves. We have days for grief and we have days for joy and we have days that bring together both of those. We have the Maror during the Passover Seder. And when we think about Jewish resilience and adaptability, we can think about all the different ways that practices evolve or don't evolve that we can connect to family histories. I know that my Ashkenazi family was reformed for a long time. I know that there was a decree in Poznan in modern day Poland that said that the only Jews who could stay there were those who spoke high German. And that I learned is why my family who came here said, oh, we're not Yiddish speaking Jews, we're German speaking Jews. And there are these ways that we can better understand our families and our practices and that which we inherit and don't inherit through learning about our families and our genealogy. And I also wanna say that it's not always easy to trace this, especially when records were destroyed, um, when names were changed, it can be really difficult. And so I do wanna say that I think that this practice can be really valuable, even imaginatively. There are ways that you can find empathy and forgiveness and compassion for that which we do know, ways that you can find that for you know, the, the living generations that you see around you that you knew in your lifetime, and ways that you can sort of engage in that imaginative exercise just of knowing what Jewish people have been through, so many different kinds of diasporic Jewish people, Mizrahi, Sephardi, Ashkenazi. And there's a way that opening our heart to this can really change both how we practice Judaism and how we find compassion and empathy for both ourselves, for our own families, and for other Jews across the diaspora. And so I just wanna leave with a few suggestions for practice and resource. Um, in my own work, I, I sometimes offer meditations. I do some work on, um, on Jewish meditation and I also work with people on their writing projects. I'm a writing doula. I do lots of different practices where that sometimes involve intense grief. I'm working with someone who recently lost someone. And there are ways that when we bring our ancestors in and we invite in our ancestors and our traditions into some of the sort of nitty gritty nuts and bolts things of the day to day that we try to do, it can be deeply, deeply empowering and change how we move through these things. So you might try awareness practices, mindful breathing, and whether you're focusing on negative or positive sensations in the body, you're, you can always invite in your ancestors, known or unknown, to just join you in breathing. You might say, imaginatively, as much or little as you want. I just want to invite you to breathe with me and to enjoy this moment, to be present, to feel the support of the earth beneath me, the same earth that supported you when you were here. You can feel the support and resilience of the past generations behind you, knowing that all of your gifts, all of your talents, and yes, even your fears have been influenced by the things that your ancestors have been through. And of course, by the things you've been through in your life. And that's so many things that we go through, even in our individual lives are not unique and are experienced by previous generations. And finally, you can also try journaling letters to ancestors, known or unknown. You can ask the questions, you can raise the curiosities, you can raise anger, you can express sadness, you can express gratitude, you can accept, express empathy. 
All these different things help us deepen our own self-understanding of ourselves, of our ancestors, and help us to better connect with Jewish people across the world. Thank you so much. All right, well, thank you. And if you can stop your screen share, Jess, that'd be great. Um, also, um, put yourself on. Uh, um, I, I am so thrilled to have you. I knew um, this presentation would be terrific. It hits me on several levels. One, you're a young woman who is thriving to be Jewish. If you look at the tiles that are filling up now, you'll see that we are so interested in accessing your demographic for Jewishness. And so you brought such vibe and such um, brilliance to your presentation. The second part is we all are trying to figure out our family histories. I personally didn't have my parents' history of the Holocaust, and I too have been researching, and I use our group here, our community. You talk about a resource, this resource in front of us, there's 10, there's 20,000 community members in this global community that you're seeing just a small part of, is a tremendous resource, and I use it every day to find pieces of my parents' puzzle. So I wanna thank you, I want you to also not acknowledge the chat. There are some really interesting questions for you, which you can respond to. We'll get to the Q&A later on. Um, and I believe it or not, our group is continuing to fill up. This program is recorded and will be streaming on all of our digital platforms by tomorrow. So just everyone knows. Um, there are some members here in the are interested to probably touch base with you. We have Blima Larma, who's in Brazil speaks Portuguese, I believe, would have some touchability, and I would hope you would be able to connect with Blima and Blima share, share who you are and your information. We have Esther, who is this uh, Holocaust historian, and I just saw Esther's eyes light up when you showed the synagogue and the, you know, in, and the 200 years of Inquisition. I just saw some brightness of light come across uh, Esther's face, so it's terrific. And so I want to um, give everyone a chance to absorb your presentation, and I want to introduce our video musical guests, Josh, N Josh Nelson and Liard Gervitz. They, are they have given us permission of two beautiful songs I know that you'll enjoy very much, so I'm going to go to that, and then we'll come back to Joe's presentation.
All right, very good. That was Josh Nelson and Leon Gerwitz in Hine Matovu. And next to present, and perhaps Joe, you can share a little bit about your background before you start your presentation. Um, and I wanna hand you, and I'm going to be running your presentation. So when you're ready to start, just let me know and we'll be uh, on our way. So here we go. So welcome Joe to the program. Thank you. And I'm delighted to be here. Thanks to you, Jeffrey, and also for everybody listening in today. You said I should introduce myself and then I could start my presentation, but partly my the two are the same. Um, the first part of my book, so you could pop up that first slide, Jeffrey, if you would. I will. Uh, I... Let me share my screen. Just give me one second and we'll be right there. I called my book Dancing with My Father, which was a bit of a play on words because my father and I did dance, but through my most of my adulthood, my father tried dancing me away from the truth. My journey is um, somewhat like yours, Jess, but only in a very superficial kind of way. I was born in Ireland, in the southwest of Ireland. Um, a very isolated part of the country at the time I was born in 1948, and in many ways still um, is so. And I thought I was Irish, I was Catholic, I was known as, by my mother's maiden name, I was first going to school, started school at four, so my name was Josephine Foley, and I was Noreen Foley's daughter. We moved to Canada when I was seven, almost eight. And I think that's when I learned I had another last name, but it really didn't make much of an impact on me. We moved in a Catholic environment. Both of my parents were very involved in different aspects of the church. I went to Catholic school. And um, when I moved to Toronto, when we moved to Toronto, when I was 17, I went to a private girls school, Catholic school. My brothers, two brothers also went to Catholic schools. So that was basically my life. Things changed when I went and worked at a summer camp when I was 17. I cannot put my finger on it to this day, what it was that alerted me that there was something there about my name. Um, I have to tell you, my name was Horowitz. And when I tell Jewish friends that I didn't have any idea I was Jewish, they say, well, how could that's not possible. Yeah, well, growing up in Ireland and growing up in Coburg, a small town that we moved to about two hours east of Toronto in the 50s and early 60s, it was very possible not to know one's background. And I asked my friends now, some of them, why they didn't tell me I was Jewish when they met me at camp. And again, they, well, why should they tell me I was? They assumed I knew this. Anyway, at this point, I started 
dropping hints to my father, saying that we had a lot of Jewish kids at the camp, they were very bright, all of the kinds of buttons I thought that I could push that he would finally say, well, that is our background. But it was a waste of air on my part. Um, my trump card always with him was music. And when I talked, that was his passion. And when I talked to him about how musical the kids were, he just, again, let it go. Things changed though, when I was doing a master's in social work, when I, I took a few years off school, went back. So I was about 24 when I was placed as part of my study requirements at Baycrest. So Jeffrey, if you'd turn the next slide. Now Baycrest is a um, very well-known place where they do a lot of research um, education on aging and also have a very excellent residence for people who are from all faiths, although Jewish predominates. There was an exhibit, and I think it was part, I've been working with the archivist at Baycrest, and unfortunately, their archives did not go back more than 50 years, and I'm just at that 50-year mark in terms of my education, so they haven't been able to track down anything yet, but I believe here, this is the entrance hall, and there was an exhibit called The Great Migration, and they had photographs that were about three feet by four feet hanging from the ceiling. And um, my, my fellow students had gone off to see the exhibit. I was still writing up the weekly report that I was trying to get through. And they all came rushing back in and said, put that down, you've got to come, you've got to come. So I went to the hall, still gives me shivers to uh, speak of this. There was a young woman's picture who was which was hanging from the ceiling and it was like looking at myself. So I went home that weekend and said to my father, I know now, I know who you are, I know who I am and we're Jewish. And he said, we are not. I was born a Catholic, I was baptized at the age of whatever, you know, weekly amount it was. And any time that I tried to probe and ask, he would shut me down. I asked about how his parents were killed, and he said a bomb had been dropped on the house in Vienna. And um, he talked very casually about leaving Vienna, coming to Ireland. He was on his way to New York where a cousin was going to support him and he was going to go to school there and his parents, as I say, were just did not make it out. Finally, when I was about, uh, I'm trying to think now, it was 1990, so I would have been in my 40s. He said to me, well, if you're that interested about your background, will go to Vienna. So I accompanied my parents to Austria for three weeks. And um, I guess the next slide, Jeffrey, please. My father, this is my father at various ages. These are all in Vienna. So as a two-year-old, a 10-year-old, 
I don't know what the one on the far left is. And the picture of him in the chair here is when he's 17, taken very shortly before he left Vienna. And so there began all of the, we went around to the usual art galleries, museums, the opera, the symphony, all of that kind of thing. And his stories were all very light. Um, things were wonderful. And that's all he talk about. The next slide, Jeffrey, please. This, we went to his home. This is where he was born, where he lived until he was 17. And it's the second floor, we would say, the first floor in Viennese, that big window in the corner of the building and the room running down about one, two, four windows to the side was where they lived. He always spoke of this as being part of the Ringstrasse. Well, it's more the Ringstrasse of the proletariat, because it certainly was not where the opera house and um, the palaces, etc. are. But that was certainly what kind of picture my father wanted to give. Uh, we went on a trip to Melk. I don't know if people know this. Um, it's a monastery in Austria. And we were walking around and my father said to me, well, what do you think? And I said, well, what I think is no wonder they were revolutions with all the gold in this place and people starving. And he just walked off in a huff. This was not what he wanted to hear. Apparently, though, my mother said she overheard someone say that that was the first sensible thing they'd heard all day. So Vienna, thank goodness my mother is Irish, with her feet very firmly planted in the earth because she was instrumental in balancing off this kind of sense of entitlement my father had that we often clashed about. So my hoped for um, knowledge of my family, I did not get from this particular visit. But what I did discover, next slide, please, Jeffrey, is that my mother, my mother, my grandmother, Marianne, who's with my father Anne's here, he's 10, she's in her 30s at this point. And this is taken in the Gloriette of the Schoenberg Palace in, in Vienna. And it's got an amazing view of the city and it was a favorite walk of the family. They would always go there. What did get freed in this uh, trip with my family was my father's amazing love for his mother. And I said to him at one point, um, oh my goodness, you, you must have really loved her. And he said, loved her. I adored her. And um, this is an important piece of information I got as our journey went on. When I came back, I had hoped that there would be, as I say, more information. My father did talk more about the family, let out little bits and pieces more. The next slide, please, Jeffrey. And what I found was, this is Marianne on the extreme left at about two, her sister Fritzi, who is about three, um, the mother Miriam, and the, um, 
the girl's father, my great grandfather. And he was um, from Schaiburg in Poland now, then part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And his father had been a well-off farmer who'd sent him to medical school and his older brother to law school. And he ended up in Vienna. He went to the medical school uh, at the University of Vienna at a time when there were quotas about the number of Jews that could get in. There were also in uh, Poland, um, in the empire at that time, in Belitz, where his brother studied law, they were also very definite quotas. Anyway, Ignatz ended up living in Leopoldstadt, the Jewish area of Vienna on Praterstrasse. And he was a private physician, but he also had two government posts. He was the medical officer for health in Leopoldstadt, and he was also the um, physician to the Viennese fire department. That's okay, you can go to the, to the next slide. So I began to learn these things about him. This is Marianne's sister, Fritzi. At the top left photograph, she's about 17. She was, uh, she did acting, um, actually professional, but in what my father always referred to as just this uh, kind of secondary um, troupe that toured the provinces. But he um, he had a terrible relationship with her. And I became convinced over the years that the reason he had such a bad relationship with Fritzi is because Fritzi and Marianne, his mother, were very close and he was jealous of the relationship. The way he told me at first was that Fritzi moved into the apartment that they had in Vienna. Well, it turned out that Hugo, Marianne's husband, was the one who moved in with the family, with the three women. The bottom left picture, Fritzi is in the right, down at the forefront, and that is a group of Jews who ended up getting out of Austria and Germany, and in 1939, sailing on the Königstein out of Hamburg, and going to Ecuador. It was the only country at that point that would accept Jews. They had been refused by a number of other Latin American countries. The top right picture is my father and Fritzi is on the right. She had a very, she had very bad osteoporosis. So she got smaller and smaller as she aged. And that was the first time he saw her since they both left in 1939 both from Hamburg. He never said if he saw her, they sailed on separate ships. He was on his way to New York with a stopover in Ireland. And the reason he ended up in Ireland was because his mother was so determined to get him out and felt that the noose was tightening and Ireland agreed to take Jews, uh, uh, sorry, to take Christians, probably uh, Catholic, of Jewish blood. And um, I'm writing another book about this now, Ireland, during this period, as to how few 
were actually um, allowed in the country. Now, a lot of the people that I've talked to in Ireland have said, well, it wasn't the number one spot on people's list of where to go. And I think when you're escaping what you know is about to come, you'll take refuge wherever you can get it. Anyway, my father ended up spending um, a lot more time in Ireland than he thought because he turned out to have um, very bad eyesight and he was not allowed into the US until he got glasses. Um, I've just finished by saying Fritzi uh, was somebody with whom I corresponded for years. And my regret was when my parents went to visit her in 1975, I was still in university and didn't feel I could take a break from my studies. I so regret that. She died six months later. But there's a wonderful organization in Ecuador, the, the Joes, the Jews of Ecuador. And they have been wonderful in sending me this photograph, for example, in sharing recollections that their parents had about Fritzi because she was loved and um, an important part of the community in Guayaquil. So that's certainly been a gift to have even that connection with her. I correspond regularly with a man who had worked for the Central Archives in Jerusalem, and he sent me now on a quest to, uh, to look at Irish anti-Semitism, which I'm deep into at the moment, but don't hold your breaths for the book. It took me 10 years to get this one out. And uh, I keep saying I haven't got 10 years to, uh, to uh, devote, I think, to writing a book at this point. My family was very indulgent. But anyway, it, uh, as any of you know who've looked into family research, it's kind of like going down a rabbit hole that you just can't stop yourself. You just go and go and go. So I'm just going to throw this in, Jess, because I just saw your face pop up there in the screen that um, when I was researching my family name, Horwitz, I started thinking, I wonder where that came from. So it turns out the family were originally called Benviste, and they were from Spain. So as Jess has talked about with Portugal and Spain and the Inquisition and people having to go, Jews who fled both Spain and Portugal ended up in a town near in Bohemia called Horovici. Now I'm probably not pronouncing it properly, but um, that's as close as I can get. And that segued into all of the variations of Horowitz and Horowitz and Gurwitz and all of that. So maybe a lot of us have some Sephardic blood in our background that we didn't realize, but I kind of like the idea of that. Although when I did, um, I did 23andMe when I looked at my DNA and they said I was 49.9% Ashkenazi. So I don't know what that 0.9, but I'm going to say it's Sephardic because that's what I believe the rest of me is just Irish and it's Irish back and back and back and back. So there's not a lot I can do about that. Um, next slide, please, Jeffrey. This is a picture of Marianne. 
again, um, my grandmother, she's about 17 in that. She was, according to my father, an outstanding um, mezzo-soprano. I guess she must have been because she actually sang with the Volksoper, the so-called second opera of Vienna. And she loved to sing. It's interesting that when the doctor, their father was still alive, seems like there was a fair amount of money in the family. But when he died, the government pension was so small that they had to leave their place in Prater Strasse and move to Schoenberg Strasse and closer to the center of the city. It seems like it was still a very, it was a very mixed kind of area because there were a lot of Jews working there, they're uh, living there, there was a doctor on their floor, but um, after the Nazis came in, they were forced out of the building because they had a woman living up on a higher floor who complained that they were Jews living in the building and she didn't want to have anything to do with them. So they left. Um, the next slide, please, Jeffrey. This is a picture of Marianne. And I find it so different from all of the other photographs of her that it made me wonder if it isn't um, a picture for the visa their requirement, it looks like this is something that could easily have been at that. It's about the, um, the right age. She would have been about 45 at this point. And um, her, I can't tell if her hair is combed back or if it's cut at this point, but she had incredibly long hair. So it's impossible to tell. But as I say, it's very different from the other pictures. Um, what is precious about this and the other photographs I have is that unbeknownst to my father when he was packing up to leave Vienna, his mother slid the album in his trunk underneath his bicycle and his accordion. So you can imagine the size of this trunk. Um, he, when it landed in Ireland and he went to pick it up, the Nazis had smashed his bike. It took him almost a year to get it working again. It was very determined, but he did get it working again. He could never get over the fact that they hadn't destroyed the accordion because the accordion was his passport in Ireland. He was very popular at all of the country dances in the small town where my mother lived. And he made his way around by, um, by going to places with his accordion. Next slide, please. This is my grandmother, Eugenie. Now, interestingly, what I find fascinating about this, Jeffy, if you go back to that slide of Marianne, the one just before, oh no, the next one again. No, the, uh, this one, and then the one of Eugenia, to me, it looks like this, the same person. Like these people have to be related is what I think. And yet what my father said was this was his Horowitz grandmother. So I don't know. What happened with her was there was a big fight in the family. 
Hugo, my grandfather, was a private scholar. He always wanted to work in university. He could not get a position in a university. Um, he thought, I think, because of anti-Semitism, he wanted to work at the Technical University of Berlin when he had gone to school for a couple of semesters there and also at the Technical University of Vienna. And again, he did not get a position there, but he wrote a lot. So he had hundreds, literally, of articles that he had written on everything from ancient weaponry to ancient technology. And when his, his father was very proud of, of the fact that he had this son who was had a PhD and, and seemed to be doing well for himself. And he supported Hugo. I think it was a double-edged sword, his support, because what it meant was Hugo never really had to apply and work at something that he didn't particularly like. He worked at Austro Fiat, the Fiat factory in Vienna, for not quite a year. And he developed a spring system for cars. And as my father always said, it worked great in the lab, but when they actually put it in a car, it apparently just went down, flattened the wheels out because it was so heavy. And that seemed to be Hugo. So he was very successful in some ways, but he was totally impractical. What he did was he spent the last 12 years of his life and his mother's life battling it out over his father's will because his father left one sixth of his estate to his wife, uh, sorry, to his son and left five sixths of it to Eugenia and Hugo's sister, Eugenia's daughter. Now, I don't have any pictures of Elsa, but I do know what happened to her. She, Eugenia had gone to see her accountant for something or other, and there was a Nazi swoop that day. Eugenia got picked up and deported to Auschwitz. She was ordered left, so you know what that meant. She was 83 years old. My father never told me when the family actually found this out. He said there was so much going on with people disappearing at that point, not being heard from. They had no idea what happened to Eugenia, but Auschwitz was her fate. When she was picked up, that left her daughter who had mental problems. I don't know exactly what they were on their own, on her own. So she also was picked up and she was sent to Hartheim. Hartheim was a mental hospital that the Nazis took over in 1938 and they turned it into a so-called euthanasia center where they perfected gassing. And Elsa died on March the 6th, 1941 as part of those gassing experiments. Um, th these were the points where I sometimes couldn't continue writing. It just uh, just shut me down. And it's interesting to think that 
I didn't learn anything I didn't already know about in terms of the camps and Auschwitz, but somehow when it's someone in your family that you know ended up there, it brings it home in a very different kind of way. Um, I hesitated about telling my father about this. So it was with amazement that I was reading a book that had been written about Hugo called The Relay Principle, Das Relay Principe. That was a book written by two German historians, one at the University of Hamburg and the other at the University of Vienna. And they were talking about people whose lives had been cut short by the Holocaust, who were people that were scholars that would have made a mark. That's when I read how Eugenia had died and where she died. And it was a typical kind of um, academic, with all due respect, Jess, um, tome where there were so many footnotes that there were I hate footnotes, I have to say. So when there was a footnote beside Eugenia dying in Auschwitz, I, I just skipped it over. When I started to look at it again, I thought, well, I want to know where that information came from. And I couldn't believe that it had actually come from my father because he never, ever acknowledged this. If you'd go to the next slide, Jeffrey, please. This is Marianne on the left, Hugo on the right. And I don't know what the rest of you think, but to me, it looks like there's there's a, there's a hint of, um, I don't know, elitism, would one say, about uh, Hugo. Um, I just, maybe I'm just reading into that because of what I know about him. But this was also taken at the Gloriette of Schoenberg palace. And as I said, a place where the family went to a lot. The pictures that I have of Marianne, are, she's dressed very much like this. So that's why I thought that picture I showed earlier with the, it looks like cropped hair, certainly pulled back, I think maybe had been for a visa. So this was taken in about 1935. Hugo was writing all the way through this period, was being published through this period, they were living not very well, um, certainly not the way Hugo had lived all his life, um, because he wasn't making enough money through his writing at this point. He was making money, but he wasn't making a lot of money. And so this is why he got into suing his own mother for his father's estate. Okay, if the next slide. Please, Jeffrey. This is a building in central Vienna, and this was where Marianne and Hugo lived just before they were deported. And it seems as best the people at the university, the Technical University of Vienna, who helped me track down a lot of this information, there was a family and the man owned a paint factory, which apparently was just behind this building. This building no longer exists. It was turned into a hotel in the late 50s. But at this point, it was pretty much the way it would have looked when Marianne and Hugo lived there and had some rooms there. This was where they were deported from. 
and my German being practically non-existent, Ungargasa always made my skin crawl. What I learned was it, it means Hungary Lane. So pretty, um, pretty common a name, I guess, at that point. But they went from here to um, school in the second district of Berlin, where they waited 24 hours while the Nazis rounded up enough people to fill a train. There were to have been a thousand people. There were a thousand and one people. By the time the train got to Minsk, there were two people dead. And so the rest of them got off this car. Now, my father had always comforted himself when he learned I think Fritzi got in touch with the Red Cross to find out the fate of Hugo and Marianne. And she learned that they had been sent to Minsk. And my father comforted himself that at least they had been shot when they got off the train. They weren't. They survived for four months and died apparently of starvation. Although when I, the Nazi death record of February the 27th, 1942, give the date of their death as February the 27th for both of them. And it made me wonder, do they really die of starvation on the same day? Seems to me more likely that they probably had been shot that day along with 977 others. They, in the Mintz ghetto, I think that slide is next. No, it's not. I'm jumping over the place. Well, it won't matter. This is the book on, on the right here, Hugo Theodore Horowitz and Thomas Branstetter and Ulrich Troitsch wrote the book. And it was biographical in half. And then the other half of the book talked about his scholastic academic work. He was also the left column of the blue book. The second one up from the bottom on the left is Hugo. And again, I'm inclined to think that was his passport or, or visa application picture. And this on the extreme left was a publication from 1916 of some of his work and his thesis. And Uli Troitsch, who wrote the book on Hugo, spent 10 years trying to get a copy of the thesis for our family. Unfortunately, none of us can read German or the little bit I do isn't sufficient. So Hugo's books, will probably, um, Hugo's thesis will probably join his books, which are in a permanent exhibit in the Technical Museum of Vienna. I'll get into that in a little bit later. Um, I found it, again, difficult to deal with when I was doing the research to find that 97 books from Hugo's library and 13 personal letters were saved, were sent off to the museum, the Technology Museum of Vienna, uh, the same week. 
that he and Marianne were sent to their deaths in, in Minsk. But a story, unfortunately, all too common. Um, okay, I think the next slide then, please, I'm kind of jumping all over the map here. Oh yeah, so this is the Hofburg Palace in Vienna. And the Museum of Ethnology has a floor in this um, palace to this day. And Hugo's office, if you're looking at the picture, is on the right wing, and it's the third window um, on the right. We did not go in the day I was there with my parents because <laughs> this picture actually had a crane and some construction in front of it, and uh, my stepdaughter very um, artistically got rid of that for me. But that particular day, there was just construction. In fact, there was construction everywhere we seemed to want to go that particular day. But um, it seemed that Hugo was had a, had a room or offices in a number of libraries and museums. So perhaps it was not uncommon a practice in those days. Um, I don't think there would be anything now to uh, indicate that he had once been there. I did try and get, um, I can't say it in German, so I'll say it in English, the stumbling stones. I wanted to, to put stumbling stones for my grandparents, my great-grandmother, and my great-aunt, but there's such a waiting list in Vienna that they said it wasn't possible at the moment. So I have a contact person and I'm in touch with her and I hope at some point I can do that. I think that's a way that um, they'll be remembered, not just by me. Um, I should add, maybe at this point, to say I have two brothers and we accompanied my father to Vienna in 2006 because he wanted to meet and thank the people who had written about his father and had been able to tell him and get him some information about their last days and also to thank the universe, uh, the museum, the Technical Museum of Vienna for the permanent exhibit of Hugo's books. Um, I find it hard to talk about even to this day um, going with my father, my two brothers and I, to go with my father when he saw Hugo's library was um, unforgettable. It's uh, like he was touching the bones of his dead parents. Um, I'd never seen him like that. We all ended up leaving. Um, my two brothers don't feel any of their Jewish heritage. We, I asked them at a couple of points throughout our trip in 2006. We'd all gone with my parents when my mother was still alive at different points and done the Anne's tour of Vienna, but this was the first time that it was my brothers and I with my father where all of the information was finally out. And yet, to this day, neither of them have any sense of them being Jewish. 
we grew up in, in the same house. We were subject to a lot of the same kinds of influences, obviously. I don't know how that happens, but it does. And again, in more than just our family. Um, interestingly, though, my older brother was a teacher and he often accompanied classes from Toronto schools to various European cities in the final grades. So we have had a grade 13 in Ontario schools at the time he was a teacher and he would take his grade 12 and 13 classes, he and his wife to Europe. And he told me that they were in Poland and that part of the trip was to include a trip to Auschwitz. And he was on the bus and he had to go to the front and tell the driver to stop. He could not go through with it. So I find it interesting that he cannot acknowledge his Jewish past and yet he could not go to Auschwitz and face what was there. Maybe there's hope. Um, next slide, please. And um, Joe, how many more slides do you have? Um, we're on the Schoenberg, I think about um, three, four, too many. Yep, thank you. I'll, uh, I'll talk faster if, if need be. I do tend to go off on tangents, I know. Okay, this one we can whip through. This is my father in Ireland, his beloved accordion. Um, I never asked him what became of the accordion and I have no idea. Uh, he's played the piano all the years that I knew him, he was also pretty good on the violin. None of his children inherited his talent, although some of his grandchildren did. This is my father finding out, this is a street in Dublin and he is coming back from the US embassy when his, he's just been told he is not able to go to the US and he's going to have to retake his eye exam, but it can't be under a year. So he was devastated at that point. He was working on a farm in a very remote part of Ireland where the Irish Coordinating Committee for Refugees had established places where people like my father, Christians, Catholics of Jewish blood could be provided for a short period of time in some cases, permanently in others. And he, was so devastated that he just said he sh shut down for a couple of weeks. And then he started thinking, said, okay, I'm on my way to New York. I'm gonna go to New York working on a farm. It's not gonna give me any skills that will equip me for life in the US. So he talked them into getting him a training course in technology. And um, he took tool and die and machining and he worked as an engineer all his life. It wasn't until we went back to Vienna and he, we went to the Technical University of Vienna and I said, well, where did you take your classes? And it took it a long time for it to come out, but he actually admitted he only went to classes for two weeks. People would turn their backs on him, former friends. He was now a Jew. And he said he felt very uncomfortable. Eventually, he wasn't allowed classes anyway, but he had all his books. So he studied on his own. 
and he presented himself as uh, an engineer. And so that's how he worked. He said, whenever people asked for his diploma, he said, well, given what was going on at the time, at which point they would all say, yes, yes, that's fine. And off he would go. So uh, he'd hate to, me to use the term, I'm sure, but talk about having chutzpah. He certainly had it in spades from everything I saw of him. I did say that he'd hate me to um, use the word. This is my mother. Now, there's a bit of a mystery about her. She admitted to being six on occasion, seven years older than my father. But when I actually started going into the Irish census, she was 12 years older than he. So um, there's that story that I'm digging into at the moment because I'm talking about the... Um, the Irish history. Okay, um, Jeffrey, I would just go to the next slide. And this is the Mintz ghetto, part of the ghetto, which was in the city. And um, this is the horrid place where Hugo and Marianne spent their last days. And then if you would just go, Jeffrey, to the last, well, second to last slide, which is the permanent exhibit of Hugo's books um, in the library. This is a book called An Irish Sanctuary um, in which my father uh, is talked about the place where he was given refuge, some of the experiences of German speaking refugees in Ireland. And again, I'm sure Jess, you found this as well. Well, I, I've been amazed in the writing of the book, the generosity of people who work in universities and archives and museums. It's you ask for one small thing and you end up with a hundred and, and uh, it becomes really a bit of a chore trying to, if you're writing a book as I did, trying to sort through and uh, decide what to use or not. But I had a very um, clever friend who told me when I was complaining about having too much information, she said, just keep the things that move your story forward, which was an excellent piece of advice. Um, I just want to close with when my father came back to Canada after being in Vienna, he received a certificate from the Jewish community of Vienna giving him honorary membership in that community. And he wrote a wonderful response back uh, in which he came as close as he ever came to owning his Jewish heritage. Um, the year before he died, he made uh, almost a ceremonial handing over of the certificate to me. So um, I don't have that from the community, but um, I actually don't need anybody to tell me I'm Jewish. I am, and um, I'm half at least. I'm like a lot of hyphenated citizens of the new world who describe themselves as um, Italian Canadians or Italian American. Well, I describe myself as an Irish Jewish Canadian, and I'm equally proud of all of those three. 
thank you for listening. I know I go off in tangents a lot of the time, but um, thank so much for this. Jeffrey, again, I really appreciate it. And um, well, thank you, Joe. Um, you have a unique distinction in that you were the first to bring a story of Irish descent to our group. And um, we're thrilled to have your story as part of our library now. And um, I think it's wonderful. And so I want to, uh, I know we're advancing on time, so I'm going to allow Esther uh, the opportunity to uh, present now. We'll come, we'll see if we have time for music, but I do want to uh, go to uh, Esther and Esther, I'm so thrilled to have you uh, join us for the third time uh, in three years. So it's terrific. And Esther's coming from the Rocky Mountains of Canada um, to us. So go ahead, uh, Esther, say hello. And uh, you're going to run your own presentation. So go for it. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. Um, I, I keep looking down because I have a puppy on my lap who has been asleep the whole time. I, I'm sure once I get into this, she's going to uh, she's going to wake up and be impossible. But let's see how how it goes here. If I can do this, yay! Are we on? Yep. Great. Yes. Yep. Great. So Jeffrey, thank you. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here with you today, and thank you. Joe and Jess for your fascinating talks. What do you do if your teachers tell you what you really want to study is not a real study? In Martin Gilbert's case, he listened to his teachers. He was in high school after all, but in his heart and in his work, he had to find a way to include his first love. What were the two areas of study he had to choose between? Martin was always fascinated by maps and by traveling to and learning about the places he had visited. He wanted to study geography, but his teachers suggested history instead. So what Martin did was to combine his two great interests, one of which became his favorite hobby, drawing maps. This is how his atlases developed as he describes it. In 1960, during my first year teaching at Oxford, I drew maps on a blackboard to illustrate aspects of British history. The next teacher rubbed them out in order to put up his mathematical formula. One of my pupils suggested that I draw the maps on paper and circulate them to the class. Another pupil said, why don't you publish them in book form? I did just that. From that, his historical atlases developed and he has nine of them available. You'll see there are three for countries, British, American, and Russian, one for each of the world's wars, and the four Jewish-related ones, the Arab-Israel conflict, and the Atlas of Jerusalem on the outside, bottom row, and the two I'd like to tell you a bit more about in the center, the Holocaust Atlas and the Atlas of Jewish History. Every few years, Sir Martin's Atlas publisher, Routledge, asked him to update the atlases, and he would draw new maps to be added to the new editions. His method was to decide what story he wanted each map to tell and then use tracing paper over a regular map that had the features to the proper scale. 
These tracings then went off to his cartographer who put them on PDFs. Then there was always a lot of back and forth to get each map and each feature correct. Martin died in 2015. He had involved me in every aspect of his work and dealing with his publishers, so I tried to carry on in the same style. Every aspect I was somewhat, somewhat familiar with, except one, I had no background in geography, and the idea of creating new maps was well beyond my meager skill set. Still, his Routledge editor came to me to update the atlases. My short answer was, no way. But then I realized that Martin had put maps in every one of his 88 books. There were his maps we could use and add them to his atlases. This was a project that took years, but in the end, I found enough maps to update three of his atlases, as you can see from the different covers. In addition, I updated the indexes of these three, and the indexes are all online on martingilbert.com, as are all the indexes of his ebook editions. I want to focus on the two that will have some relevance for you, the Holocaust Atlas and the Jewish history, and show you some of the maps to give you a flavor of how Sir Martin presented history through geography. If you have questions on the other atlases, I can hopefully answer them as well. The Holocaust Atlas is very special to me. My mother had said that her town in Poland was so small it wasn't on any map. The first time I ever saw it on a map was in Martin's Atlas of the Holocaust. I found this atlas when I was in Israel in 1984, bought it, and 12 years later when I met Martin Gilbert, it was the book I brought with me for him to sign. Sarny, my mother's hometown, is, sorry, is just south of Volhynia in the map title. It has, one of the thousand, it, it has one of the thousands of mass murder sites in the former Soviet occupied zone, as you can see from this small area of what is now Northwest Ukraine. In August, 1942, Jews of the town, Jewish refugees who had fled from the West and Jews from a few surrounding towns and villages were brought just outside the forest of Sarny to be killed, 10,500 in two days. Sarny is on the crossroads where the north-south rail lines from Vilna in the north and Lvov in the south cross the east-west lines between Kiev in the east and Warsaw to the west. The town was established in 1900 with the coming of the railway. Its Jewish community was destroyed in 1942, a vibrant shtetl that sent scholars to study at yeshiva in Vilna and pioneers to the land of Israel. Among those murdered were my 53-year-old grandparents, Esther Chaya and Beryl, shown here in the upper photo with my parents on their wedding day, and their two younger daughters, Mindel, who was 21, and Dina, who was four, 14, shown in the lower photo. These photos were taken in 1939, three years before they were murdered. So this is my connection to the Shoah and why this particular book has always been so important to me. In all of his Holocaust books, and there are 11, Martin always begins with a pre-war life of Jews and Jewish communities 
to show that their lives and the life they lived, led was vibrant and had been that way for generations, for centuries. The destruction and murder that came later to the Jews of Europe wiped out human beings who had added much to the areas they inhabited. Sorry, we're just readjusting here. If you can find Lutsk on the map, spelled L-U-C-K, it's just south of the H in Volhynia at the center of the province. Here at Lutsk is just inside the border of pre-war Poland. In this map, Martin shows not only Poland's largest Jewish communities and their Jewish population, but the percentage of Jews in the city and how long those Jewish communities had existed. We see that Jews lived in Lutsk since the 10th century, and before the war, 17,000 Jews lived there, making up nearly half the population. A more recent community was in Lodz, in Western Poland, where Jews lived since the 18th century, and its 200,000 Jews made up a third of the population. And of course, Jews lived in tiny shtetlach, scattered across the area. Unlike Martin's other historical atlases, the Holocaust Atlas has text that elaborates on what the maps show. Each two-page spread is a self-contained unit that tells a story of a particular area or time. Martin also uses photographs, some of them his own, taken during visits to Poland in the early 1980s. And like all of Martin's histories, he follows the chronology so we can see how the story develops, how one thing led to another. The map on the left shows some of the anti-Semitic attacks on Jews after the First World War until the rise of Nazism also showing some of the text that gives more background into what the maps depict. You'll note on the map on the left, the toll of the pogroms in what is now Ukraine led to the death of 85,000 Jews between 1918 and 1920. On the map on the right, we see the populations of Jews in German cities during the rise of Nazism. And you'll note that five concentration camps were established already in 1933, just af after Hitler came to power. In my own attempts to learn about this period of our history and through my discussions with Martin, I've come to the perspective that the Nazis enacted a series of solutions to what they called the Jewish question of how to get rid of the Jews. Bless you. Sorry. The first solution to get rid of the Jews was by forcing them to emigrate, leaving their homes, businesses, and most of their possessions behind. These maps show where German and Austrian Jews were able to find safe havens, though those in Europe came under German occupation when the war broke out. It is important to realize that nearly half of Germany's 650,000 Jews emigrated and survived. Then came Kristallnacht. On October 28, 1938, 15,000 Polish-born Jews living in Germany and its newly incorporated lands of Austria and the two provinces of Czechoslovakia were deported to the Polish border 
where they were dumped. Poland accepted some, but the rest were left without any shelter or provisions. Berta Greenspan, among those left at the border with her parents, wrote to her brother Herschel Greenspan in Paris. Greenspan took a gun and went to the German embassy with the intention of killing the ambassador and instead wounding the third secretary, Ernst von Rath. Von Rath died of his wounds and Hitler used, sorry, bit of commentary here. Hitler used that assassination as a pretext for launching Kristallnacht on the night of November 9th to 10th, when every synagogue throughout Germany was destroyed along with Jewish homes and businesses. The map on the right shows the concentration camps of Sachsenhausen near Berlin, Buchenwald, and Dachau near Munich, where 60,000 Jews were taken and brutalized. A year later, Germany invaded Poland and the Soviet Union occupied their former czarist lands. And so Jews came under either German or Soviet occupation. By 1940, the Germans enacted their second solution to the Jewish question. Lock the Jews in ghettos where the amount of food and medicine and fuel was tightly controlled. Eventually, ghettos were established in nearly every area under German control. They served as sources of slave labor for German industrialists and as, a tra and as transit camps to death. The ghettos were administered by the Germans, their orders carried out by Jewish councils whose heads were called elders as they were not even allowed to be called leaders. These men were put in impossible, untenable situations. Two examples of the agony of the Germans or that, that of the agony the Germans orders forced them to do. In 1942, when deportations to the death camps began, Adam, sorry, bit of interference. Adam Cherniakov, the head of the Jewish Council in Warsaw, committed suicide rather than deliver to the Germans the required number of Jews for deportation. Chaim Rumkowski, the head of the Lodge Ghetto, established factories to try to keep the Jews alive. But eventually he had to appeal to the Jews in Lodge to give up their children and older people in order to save a remnant who were able to work. The Warsaw Ghetto was destroyed in 1943, the Lodge Ghetto in 1944. In June 1941, Germany invaded the Soviet Union. Along with the German army came 1,000 Einsatzgruppen special task forces divided into a sorry, divided into four sections to cover the area from the Baltic Sea in the north to the Black Sea in the south. Their job was to murder Jews and Soviet partisans by machine gun, my family among them. This approach to getting rid of the Jews became the third solution brutalization and mass murder began with the German invasion in 1941 and lasted until these areas were liberated by the Red Army in 1944. On the 20th of January, 1942, the heads of the German government ministries met at the Wannsee Villa near Berlin to decide and accept the fourth and final solution, 
deportation to the death camps. Martha has mapped the principal deportation routes to Felno, Belgetz, Sobibor, Treblinka, and Auschwitz-Birkenau, along with the camp layouts and the deportation routes to and from Theresienstadt. This slide shows just the two, Belgetz and Treblinka. Finally, something fun on this atlas. I photocopied Martin's index of places and people from his previous edition to update it. It turned out to be a more interesting challenge than I realized. This is what the first page corrections and additions look like. The yellow highlighter is for the map numbers that are correct. The orange highlight is when I ran out of yellow highlighter. I wrote in extra places and map numbers and the red checks show agreement with the index proof copy. Martina always felt that indexes are vital to any book and crucial to his work to know what experiences and events the book describes. He once got upset with his sales clerk in a bookstore when he was buying a book that didn't have an index. He told her to get in touch with the publisher and lodge a complaint. So I felt it a real honor to be able to include a proper and correct index in this atlas. The other atlas I updated also includes now an index of places and individuals. The Jewish history atlas did not have an index at all. When I was creating the index for this book, I was amazed at how it seems every corner of the world has some Jewish connection and is part of Jewish history. Here, there are no texts on the pages. Often Martin included text boxes within the map itself. So I was able to take Jewish related maps from his other books and slot them into the right places chronologically. <clears throat> I divided up the book into sections, eras, beginning with antiquity, then the medieval period, modernity, two sections on the 20th century up to 1945 and post-war, and then into the 21st century. How did Martin come to write this atlas? This is how he explained it in 2008. In 1967, when I was an assistant to Randolph Churchill, writing the life of his father, a task which I succeeded when Randolph died in 1968, he telephoned me to say, we are writing about the war. I replied that I knew that, and that even then I was preparing for him the materials for 1915. But Randolph was talking about another war, the Six-Day War, which had just broken out in the Middle East. What did Randolph want of me? I want you to prepare the first chapter, dear boy, the history of the Jews from Moses to Nasser in 4,000 words. Randolph needed that chapter within the next three days. To make the task possible, I covered my desk with large pieces of paper on which I drew maps of the various phases of Jewish history. These maps served as a basis for the chapter that I took to Randall and which he published unchanged. The result for me was another atlas in the making, the Atlas of Jewish History. This atlas has maps of the Jewish population country by country and the pattern of immigration to Israel whose Jewish population this year, he's talking 2008, exceeded that of the United States for the first time. Though the map I put on the cover, titled Early 
Jewish migrations about 2000 BC is pre-Moses, he makes his appearance in the second map in which Martin maps approximate route of the Jewish exodus, sorry, just got bitten. Approximate route of the Jewish exodus according to the biblical narrative. Maybe something to keep in mind when we gather to celebrate Passover. But as we know, it wasn't all milk and honey in the promised land. And Jews have suffered exile and dispersion for centuries, as Joe and Jess have described. Sorry, she's just eating my pen. Um, in thinking about how old some of in thinking about how old some of the Jewish communities in Europe and Northern Africa are, these two maps show how Jews got around, established themselves in their communities and made their lives. Moving on to the medieval period, we see the spread of Islam in 750, that the Jews of the period, and that the Jews of the period had some respite under the Muslim conquerors, more favorable than the treatment of frequent massacres and expulsions Jews had lived under Christianity. The map on the right shows the medieval expulsion from Christian countries and the Eastern European and Mediterranean towns where they found refuge. Which brings us to modernity. Just wanna make sure, okay. And the Jewish self-help organizations founded to help local Jews and those farther afield who needed assistance. Among the organizations was the Anglo-Jewish Association in London, which founded schools in Bombay, Tangier, and Jerusalem in the upper right-hand corner of the map. In the opposite corner in Jerusalem, the American Joint Distribution Committee, known as the Joint, founded in 1914, which surpassed the efforts of the other organizations. Others you may be familiar with are the OSE, the Society to Promote Health Among Jews, which founded hospitals, kindergartens, and children's homes, and ORT, the Society to Promote Trades and Agriculture, which set up agricultural colonies in Russia, Shanghai, Shanghai, South Africa, and South America. At near the center of the map, you'll see the Pale of Settlement, which Martin mapped in greater detail here. By 1897, there was more than 5 million Jews living in the Pale. The first half of the 20th century was characterized by war, the First World War, in which Jewish soldiers served in nearly every army, and the Second World War, in which Jewish death seemed to be a priority. Was also characterized by the dream of Zionism and encouraged by the brutal treatment Jews faced, many found ways to, to emigrate to British Mandate Palestine before the war as these two maps show. Interestingly, the map on the left shows that Arabs also emigrated to Palestine. It may have been for better economic opportunities. And then the war began. It's important to remember the cliche that the Jews went to the slaughter like lambs was not right. In every area there was resistance, revolt even in the death camps, and a strong will to survive and maintain whatever humanity was possible. 
Post-1945, the focus changes to the establishment of Israel and the long sought after quest for peace. Peace did not happen for the Jews living in Muslim lands though, and the Atlas includes maps of the former Jewish communities in 11 Arab and Muslim countries, from Morocco in the West to Afghanistan in the East. The other important story in world Jewry at the end of the 20th century was the story of Soviet Jewry and the campaign in which Martin was very involved. These maps show where most of the Soviet Jews left from and where many settled in Israel. The 21st century se section focuses on Jewish population, immigration to Israel, and anti-Semitic acts, which unfortunately precede the last few months. And then I added a new index. Each highlighted name on each map found its way into the index, often with modern names as well. I began with a personal story about my own family and background, so I'd like to end with one. After finishing high school in the early 1970s, I went on a university-led tour of Europe for high school students. We studied the Renaissance and saw amazing cathedrals and churches, paintings, and sculpture. But I remember at one point trying to escape from the blazing summer sun, sitting in the cool shade on the steps of a church in Italy. Something was missing, and it would have bothered no one but me as I was probably the only Jew on the trip. Where was Jewish history in Europe? Where were the Jews, and why wasn't their presence then and their lives part of what we were learning? Years later, when I found this atlas, I knew it held the key to that answer. So it was a real privilege to be able to take Martin's maps and create a new edition that is more of a comprehensive study of Jewish history through, ge through geography. I hope both the Holocaust Atlas and the Jewish History Atlas will be a help to you in learning about our rich heritage. And if I can now, Stop sharing. Okay. Did I do it? Yes, you did. Yeah. And I just have to show you. I don't know if you can see how this pen is bitten up, but it kept her somewhat occupied. Well, I wanted to make sure that everyone, please show her more in the camera because I, I realized that you have a new research assistant. I do, yes. And the research assistant is right. She's now <laughs> chewing up the pen. And she, her, her name is Cammie, and what a, what a research assistant she is. Indeed, indeed, yes, if she doesn't oh, devour the pen entirely. Ow. Sorry, my is, fingers get in the way. Work is quite amazing, and you've been really, really busy, and I know I have some questions for you, and it's a perfect segue into the Q&A, so I would ask, we have now, we have a, a lot of people still with us, and I would ask that, um, let me remove the pen, and ask the whole audience to put their screens on, cameras on, so we can see you. And if you have questions, I want you to go to your uh, Zoom toolbar. And if you look at my tile, you'll hit the reactions button and raise your hand, and we will be able to see you. You'll come forward to the front screen, and we'll be able to see you. And I, I see there we have several of your friends who you've introduced me to. There's uh, Deborah Bruner there, and you just popped on screen, and you're on 
you're on Deborah's uh, board. So uh, anybody who is interested in asking a question, please raise your hand and hopefully we can get into some interesting dialogue. I will start with the obvious. Where are those, um, those uh, books that you're talking about? Where are they to be bought? Is it that's for me, Jeffrey? Yes, I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, yes, you can find out more about them on martingilbert.com. You can get them through Amazon. You can get them through your friendly local bookstore if you if there is still a friendly local bookstore. Uh, they are available, and if you can't get them, get in touch with me, and I will find them for you. If you could put your uh, contact information, all three of you who presented, if you're willing to share your contact information so our audience can reach you, that would be helpful. It, um, all of the contact information will be in the chat. It'll be, it'll be published as well. So uh, I see Jackie's hand. This is Jack, Jacqueline Gamash. Jacqueline Simcha Gamash, the official Jackie Gamash, will ask a question. The, the first question is in intelligent and doesn't have anything to do with intelligence. How did you do that? How did you put all this information and all those books together? How long did it take you? But at the same time, uh, do you have the feeling that you have covered most of the situation of the stages from slavery to Israel? Or there are still others that you would like to work on? So his his publisher asked said to me, you know, would I draw new maps? And I, you know, and I thought, I don't know the stories to tell. I don't know the geography well enough. And it was always a lot of back and forth with the cartographer. So I thought I I can't, you know, Martin knew which side of the river uh -huh. a city was on. And I didn't. And I thought, I can't do this. So I said, no, I can't do it. She says, could we find another, uh, could we find someone else to do maps and add them in? And I said, no, it's Martin's work. It will remain Martin's work. So this went on for a few years. And finally, it occurred to me that with all these other books, he has maps that we could take and, and slot in. So she, she accepted that. Honestly, I don't know how many years it took, but it took years. I had various people helping me to make sure that I got the chronology right, to make sure that it, the whole thing made sense. And then in January last year, they said to me, good news, we'll have the proofs for you for three books. And when can you get the proofreading and the index? We'll give you two weeks. Oh. And I said, there's no way I can do it in two weeks. Uh -huh. I said, I need a, at least a month for each. So I got them the end of February, March, April, May. I spent a month on each one doing the proofreading and doing the indexing and not doing much else. It was before I had this one, uh, needless to say. So, and they came out in September. So did I, did I do as comprehensive as I would have liked? No. But I, they're Martin's maps, you know, so I didn't. Um, and also they told me they couldn't change the inside of the map. So they could only do the, I can't believe this dog. So they could only you, do. You, you know, I have met um, Sir Martin Gilbert a number of times. 
yes. inviting him at book fairs and uh, at UCSD, at USD. And uh, each of the sessions stays in you forever. Thank you. Thank you to the two <laughs> Thank of you. you. It was it was amazing to me to, to have the years I did with him yes. for, for too few, but uh, he left me a lot of work to do, so I'm trying to keep things going. Thank thank you to the two of you. I want to. I also want to introduce. I see Ruth and uh, Diana. If you raise your hand, so everyone can see you where you are. And I want to introduce Joe to Ruth because Ruth grew up as a child of the Holocaust in Vienna. So, uh -huh. so your connection. And I was trying to see as Ruth was watching your presentation, how she was reacting to it. And it was quite interesting. So maybe Ruth, you can introduce yourself to Joe and share any kind of how you felt her presentation came across to you. Hello, Joe. <laughs> well, it, uh, it was very interesting seeing the little themes in Vienna, places that I've walked and, and been to and also your take on the fact that uh, there's still a lot of anti-Semitism and that it was there from, there There wasn't any way we could tell how far back it goes, but it evidently from the very beginning of any Jew being in that area. So your Irish connection is extremely interesting. Um, that that's a whole other chapter that you might want to work on. It's actually a book I've already got about oh, three good. or four chapters done. Yeah. Oh, I I thought it it sounded like something that should be uh, explored a little more deeply. Thank uh, you. It's an interesting country. It's one of the few countries in the world I haven't been, but I'm I'm anxious to possibly see it someday. But maybe someday's gone by now. Well, I, wanna, I, I, also, I also want to let everyone know that you celebrated Ruth a birthday this week. And oh. I don't, don't want to embarrass you, but if you're willing to tell us what birthday number it was, we might well, be there, saying happy birthday to you, too. There comes a time <laughs> when you don't want people to know how old you are, and then there comes a time where you, you're really uh, delighted that you got that far. So I'm 91. And uh, my my memories of Vienna are are still uh, uh, very clear. I was only a little kid, but uh, when you're in danger, you have very clear memories. So yeah. I, I really appreciated all the research that's gone into everything we heard today. It's so, been very uh, educational. Happy birthday to, to you. We don't need that. <laughs> Thank you, Jeffrey. <laughs> Jeffrey, I'd just like to introduce a researcher who's joined sure. us, who's done some very important work. Heather Dune Macadam, who's yeah. hiding, um, is, is here. Martin wrote about the first transport to Auschwitz. And it was a group of girls from Slovakia who thought they were going to, 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 they had no idea what they were getting into. There were 999 of them. And Heather found out about this and decided to do 
a book and research and a film on these 999 girls and interviewed many of them and their, and their descendants. And it's really been a fascinating idea to take one transport from one place. And it was the first one to Auschwitz in March, I think, 1942, and really create something important and pow powerful. And I mean, I have any fingers after this. Uh, sorry. Can you ask, can you ask Heather to get on? Heather, join us. <laughs> Unmute. Put your camera on, Heather, because I also want to tell you to the group, Heather is going to be joining us for her talk. Great. In April 20, on part of the Yom HaShoah series that I do every Great. week on April 28th. So I will be publishing all three. And uh, Deborah Booner is here too. And she's going to be coming to us, I think, when is it? March? No. It, when, Deborah? I, was... I think it's also an April date. April date. Okay, terrific. And so she's joining us for the International Film Festival. So all of you have provided me incredible networking and contacts. I, when I first started, I knew none of you. And so all of you have brought these incredibly rich talent and resources to the group and to me. And I, I so appreciate and honored that I'll let you allow me to share my creativity to create these programs. So Yvonne, who is also originally from South Africa, so we have Zola here from Cape Town. And uh, Yvonne, please uh, share your question. You have to unmute yourself, Yvonne. Yvonne, unmute yourself. Can't hear you. You have to unmute yourself. Sorry I'm about that. Yep. Um, I just want to congratulate all three of you on excellent presentations. And um, and especially for Joe and Jess, it's very interesting to see. Um, well, Jess, I guess you knew that you had a Jewish connection in your family, and Joe, you didn't know. But I'm very interested to see how you've both embraced the Jewish aspect, you the Jewish side of your families, whereas I have so many intermarried friends here whose children have, uh, knowing both sides, chosen the other way. So uh, I'm very, you know, pleased to see that, and uh, a very interesting uh, presentations from everyone. Thank you, and Jeff, hello to you. I haven't seen you in a year or more. <laughs> well, I'm always here every month, so come on. In person. <laughs> oh, that's right. yeah. That's what we're saying. Is I used to live in San Diego, and in May I moved to Philadelphia. So Yvonne and I used to get together in San Diego, and so did Jackie as well. So. Jackie's from San Diego too. Hi, Jackie. Are, are there any other questions? All right. If there are any questions, I would I want you to stay with me because I put together a little uh, as uh, in the overtime a very important documentary. You know, we're facing such uh, incredible uh, scaling anti-Semitism. There is the woke versus the progressives versus the liberals and all of this kind of stuff. And I, and, and I have so many people who've come to me, how, I'm not the expert. Um, how do I manage discussions with my friends who are asking me about this and what do I say? And if I get into a confrontation who someone talks about genocide and the Jews and how do I handle this? So I did some research. And so I'm going to play a little documentary for you at six minutes. And I want you to hopefully 
uh, not only appreciate it, but take some lessons learned from it so that you can use it. So I'm going to go to that right now. I can find it. Hold on a minute. Wait, where are you? narratives of the extreme right, the extreme left, and all the different perspectives against the Jewish people so that when I engage with an individual from that ideology, I know exactly why they've come to those conclusions. A lot of Jews ask me how I remain so calm in conversation. And yes, it has always been in my nature to be a very calm and collected person. But I also understand that the situation I'm dealing with, the person that I'm speaking to that's against Israel and against the Jewish people, it may be the first Jew that they meet in their life. It may be the last Jew that they meet in their life. And so in that moment, every single one of us that gets into a conversation with someone who is against the Jewish people, we have an inherent responsibility to heal and to correct that relationship that that person has to understanding who the Jewish people are. And so whenever I'm in that situation, I sort of take myself out and I look at that conversation almost as if I was standing from above and realizing that this moment is not a moment to just get offended and mad and start insulting because I'm not there for myself. And this person that's saying all these things against the Jewish people, I know that it's not true. So there's no reason for me to get offended. It's more of a reason for me to take the opportunity to correct that situation and to heal that person's relationship with Israel and the Jewish people. Every Jew who's put in this position has a responsibility to stand up for their collective and to remember that whenever you're in a situation like that, there's a reason you're in it. And it's a challenge for you to bring light where there's darkness. Jews run child rape rings. That's why Donald Trump is president. So oftentimes when I get into conversations in intellectual and political spaces, people have different definitions. For example, they define Zionism as Palestinian suffering. And they immediately ask me in the conversation, are you a Zionist? And I already know their perspective on Zionism, that it means to them something negative. And if I automatically identify myself as a Zionist, they will see me as that negative thing. When in reality, to me, Zionism means the right for the Jewish people to self-determine on their ancestral homeland, meaning we, I believe, and other Zionists believe that Jews should have a right to live there. That being said, because someone takes that same word, those same sounds coming out of our vocal cords and defines it as something different, I need to be prepared first to repair that relationship to that sound before identifying with the sound. So before even going there, I would ask them, what do you define as Zionism that makes you against it? And then I would hear all the things that they have to say, that Zionism means Palestinian suffering, means all these negative things. And that's where I would correct them and say, listen, I'm against Palestinian suffering. So I should be against Zionism too, if that was the case and that was the definition. But Zionism is actually defined as the right for the Jewish people to self-determine. And because I was already able to break down the ideas that I support before labeling myself with a term, it allows for a much more fruitful conversation where we're able to get past the terms and really get to the ideas and see what we truly support and what we don't. And I think in terms of conversation, that's the of the utmost important. Yeah, the Maori are indigenous. So why is it a problem if Jews are indigenous to Israel? Oh, I'm not saying it's a problem. I'm just saying it's a weird definition. Um, is it weird when the Maoris say they're, they're indigenous to New Zealand? A lot of people ask me all the time, why do you engage with these conversations with these crazy individuals? Well, I don't necessarily think that these people are crazy. I think that they have a different perspective because they've 
been given a combination of different information that has been contextualized in a way for them to get to a different conclusion. And in order to be able to engage with them, I need to also understand their perspective, which is why over the years, I've taken upon myself to learn the narratives of the extreme right, the extreme left, and all the different perspectives against the Jewish people so that when I engage with an individual from that ideology, I know exactly why they've come to those conclusions and I know how to help them not experience my truth as an attack and a replacement to their truth, but my truth as an addition to the truth they already see and they're able to experience my words as a completion and not as a threat. You guys kill Palestinian children on a daily basis? I love you, inshallah. Inshallah, peace. We'll change and become good humans. In conversations with them, it usually takes quite a few minutes for tensions to go down and for them to start opening their minds and realizing that the person in front of them is not their ideological enemy. But eventually, many people do get to that point and are then able to have a much more open-minded conversation. I don't know what they think. I don't know what they're going to say. So it's very live, it's very in the moment. Only then do I know what ideological camp they fall in and how to address it. That being said, there is usually a camera. It gives a window for many people, whether Jewish or not, to be able to see that interaction and be able to learn from that interaction. How do you remain confident? How do you remain calm? How do you address someone who's on this extreme or that extreme? And how are you able to make your point for not only the individual to hear you, but the collective to also understand what you have to say? How about when the Arabs around you, the countries around you, actually proclaim that we need to drive all the Jews into the ocean and kill all of them? and then they actually go and do that, and then what do you do when that happens? So at this point, you're talking about a hypothetical? No, no, that actually happened. Even if in that very conversation, the person that I spoke to didn't change their minds, it could have planted seeds, right? This person had maybe never experienced a strong intellectual Jew that knows how to make the right points, and that is also confident. And that the next time they're gonna meet a Jew, they're gonna have another reference point to thinking, not all Jews are negative, or not all Jews are weak, there are clearly others that are respectful and have the courage to be able to address other points. And so oftentimes it's about planting seeds that with time are watered through other experiences and eventually that can blossom into a proper tree of knowledge that will allow the person to see the Jewish people differently. Many times people that are so convinced of their perspective and then engage all of a sudden with another part of the truth that then allows them to see a much fuller image become many times the more active individuals in changing the false narratives that people have come to because they themselves have fallen victim to it. I myself have engaged with thousands of people in different conversations about Israel and the Jewish people. And even if I don't convince someone in that very conversation, oftentimes I get messages even a year, two years, three years later of that individual saying, hey, do you remember me from this place? We actually spoke and I didn't agree with you at all. But because what you said to me, then it made me think of things in a different way. And then I met this person and then I read that and then I saw this information and that, that led me to a different conclusion, but it took time. So not always are you going to be able to convince and change someone's mind in one conversation. Sometimes you're able to, and there's clearly proof of that in many videos that I have, but sometimes it also takes time. It's important to always be a source of light wherever there is darkness, even if that light takes time to develop. Something has to happen with Iran. There has to be something. Okay. So um, I want to conclude this program. I thank you all uh, for coming and being part of it. I will not have a program at all this March. I'm having some health issues that I'm going to be taking care of in March. I will return with three programs 
in April for our Yom HaShoah Youth Series, which just will become our fourth annual, uh, April 7th, April 21st, and April 28th. Um, they're all interesting, all different, and I've been working on them for more than 10 months, so I'm really excited to bring them to you. Um, thank you, and I want to again thank Esther, I want to thank Joe, and I want to thank Jess. Jess, it's such a pleasure to have you with us, and I hope you'll recommend that other people who are following your path will join us. We need more like you in our community to provide us new insights and, and differences. One last point, I'm starting a new project with a team of very committed people, a small team, which is going to grow. I wrote you in the chat. It's time for an anti-Semitism revolution. I am researching this topic. Therefore, I found this, I think, particularly interesting video. And we're creating a unique, what I call a BHAG idea, a big, bold, audacious, goal to change the way anti-Semitism has been taught to young people using innovation and technology that I'll be building. And I'm going to be doing that in 2025. And the discussions that we are under underway now are stimulating, exciting. Some of you are part of it. Um, and we're going to have another uh, committee meeting on March 27th. If you have an interest, just reach me through Jeff G. The Baker at gmail.com or my Facebook um, DM or my JCHR now circle.so website DM to be to participate and learn and see if you want to uh, take a part in it. We hope that you will and you'll join our movement. So thank you very much for your attention. I love all of you. Thank you for allowing me to be creative and we'll see you all in April. Take care now.